0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Nobody made bigger headlines in the Michigan primary than Rashida Tlaib. She's on the cover of the New York Times today, the winner in a crowded field on the Democratic side in the 13th Congressional District. Rashida runs unopposed in November. This will make her the first Muslim woman in the U.S. Congress, and she's also going to be the first Palestinian-American in Congress. Rashida ran on a platform of a $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, and abolish ICE. Congratulations on your victory, Rashida Talib. Nice to have you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Tell me a little uh, about your history here, because you are the eldest of 14 children. And I was curious, you went to law school and then you decided to get into politics. Is <laughs> what, what happened? It doesn't seem like the most lucrative thing you could have done.
1: No, I mean, I think, you know, after college, I started working at a civil rights organization and then various uh, nonprofit human services agencies like Access, which is the largest American uh, human services agency in the country. I started getting really active on a number of social justice fronts and then decided to go back to school. I was still working full time and started taking classes on the weekend and got my law degree. And then that led me to meeting a a man by the name of Steve Tabachman, who is currently uh, was uh, at that time a state representative. Uh, He, you know, mentored me, also uh, went to a diversity training uh, that I was doing and said, you know, why don't you come work for me? I'm, I'm now the majority floor leader, I wasn't convinced uh, to come on board right away until he said, I'll come and teach you how to kill a bill. I said, well, that sounds more attractive <laughs> to me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they had all kinds of bills at that time. I mean, probably 82 anti-immigrant bills. I still remember it was 2007. And uh, from citizen check boxes on driver's licenses to trying to make English as, a, as the official language in the state. I mean, a number of what I call um, direct attack on on my neighbors and on, on the families that um, surround me. So he, um, you know, started putting the seat in and said, what are you going to do in two years? Because I'm term limited. And I said, probably go back to the nonprofit sector. And he said, no, why don't you run for this seat and, you know, become a state representative? And I said, ah, uh, I'm not going to sell out. And he said, are you calling me a sellout? <laughs> and I said, no, but it's just something that I, you know, didn't see it until um, one of my dear friends, uh, Shelly, who uh, works at ACLU Michigan, said people like us never think about running for office. And that's the problem. And as soon as sure. she said that, a light bulb went in my head and I said, I got to do this. So it, it's a remarkable story because, you know, Steve Tabachman is of Jewish faith. I'm of Muslim faith. We made history with, you know, leaning on each other. And we did it again uh, this time around in electing the first Muslima in this in, in congress i am actually not the first palestinian american um justin amash who is also from michigan is currently a, a palestinian american oh, serving in congress
0: now um what about the michigan state legislature and your experience there did what did you learn uh you as the first muslim woman in the uh, michigan legislature was there um what did you learn about doing that
1: well, I think, you know, for me, when I went there, yeah, you know, people tended to just say, oh, that's a Muslim girl. But it took action and took us, it took many, um, you know, months of gaining people's, um, you know, trust uh, beyond just, oh, that's the girl that made history. But, oh, she cares about environmental justice issues. She has a neighborhood service center. So it was mostly done through various actions and and the work that I started doing started defining who I am beyond this kind of identity uh, politics that people try to bring in. Uh, And I'm so pleased because, you know, 109 of my colleagues, my first term, many of them, I would say 80 to 85%, had never met a Muslim before. And I think I've changed their hearts and minds through my public service work. Uh, I think I, I remember specifically one of them saying, uh, you know i i'm not a um you know i don't i don't really tend to lean towards uh someone um because of you know their identity or whatever, but something about you that i'm I'm really glad that you were the first the first muslim woman i've ever met and uh it made me feel very uplifted that uh that person could say that and understand that yeah there's more in common here on on our you know love and passion for serving people. Uh, That we can really build on. And uh, what I learned the most is that connection that we, you know, probably take for granted. I mean, we don't really realize just how disconnected we are and when we do connect, how powerful it is and how it can uplift so many people.
0: I'm talking with Rashida Tlaib. She just won the primary for the Democrats in Michigan's 13th congressional district. And coming up in a few moments, we'll be talking about Turkey's economic crisis and how it could affect the rest of the world. Um, I wanted to talk with you a bit about uh, Black Lives Matter, something you support. You come from a predominantly African-American district there in the 13th district. It was John Conyers' old seat. Um, what? Uh, how did you come to support the Black Lives Matter movement, and why do you think people should?
1: Well, I can tell you growing up in Detroit, which is 85% African-American, going to Detroit public schools all my life, my high school was majority African-American, and what that means is my teachers, who some of them actually marched with Martin Luther King. Some of them actually experienced uh, some of the hardship of uh, pre-civil rights movement, and I, those th- that lens, that kind of experience that was shared with me, you know, yes, I'm a, I'm a brown girl, of you know, pa- child of Palestinian immigrants, but it really set the tone of kind of a how what I wanted to do, which was change people's lives to the better and seek out justice and my passion for um, making sure that people are protected and that they're not being targeted based on their color of their skin, their faith, their ethnicity, their sexuality, and I can tell you, you know, I bring that passion and, and it's part of who I am as a Detroiter uh, when I push back against corporate greed, when I push back against corporate polluters, uh, all of that, everything I learned from, you know, what I call my elders uh, in Detroit that comes with me and my service. But, you know, and I have to honor and respect the fact that I am not African-American, right? And I have to understand that that means me surrounding myself. Uh, with people that do have that lens and that experience of gr- being Black in America. And, you know, Black Lives Matter is personal to me. I have seen over and over again my neighbors being solely targeted because of their color of skin. I'm seeing the kind of militarization approach of local police and this um, kind of this us versus them instead of understanding that, you know, that approach is actually killing people and that this sense that, you know, African-Americans are somehow uh, dispensable. Like, I've heard somebody say that once, like, oh, well, and I, and I said, well, imagine that they were white, because if you imagine that they were white, maybe you wouldn't feel so dismissed by the fact that that person was choked to death, that that person died in jail because he wasn't given medication. Uh, you know, those are the kinds of things that draw me to fight back and to work even harder. Uh, and I think even being Palestinian and watching my grandfather's struggle in being considered second class in the country he was born in, uh, being told that he has to leave his homeland and being shot for not leaving his homeland and surviving and telling the story to me as his granddaughter about just how unfair it was and and just how painful it was to feel less than. And so Black Lives Matter is about humanity. It's about recognizing and putting the mirror up on all of us and saying something is wrong here uh, when it comes to Uh, police brutality in our country.
0: Now, uh, there's a lot of people who are kind of indifferent to Black Lives Matter. And are there some in the Arab American community there that you've thought could be more active and uh, see themselves more in the situation?
1: Absolutely. I I find that the younger generation uh, is much, much more, uh, you know, like their hearts and their minds are open. They can kind of i don't know if it's social media error or they they can feel or sense the injustice and how that relates to them being arab in america now uh it can it it, it, there's a lot of similarities but i loved when an african-american muslim brother said in a room that our 9-11 happened 500 years ago and and there was like almost a silence after that but then the young people looked at him and said okay now we get it so i know that the arab american youth are resonating with the Black Lives movement. And, and many of them are bringing their own movements along with that and to support that movement to get, you know, for them to be able to do that work together. From the campaign to take on hate, which uh, access is part of, there's been a lot of dialogue between uh, African American youth and Arab Americans. And, you know, I want to be able to support that and uplift them uh, as they try to push back against the hate.
0: I'm talking with Rashida Tlaib. She just won the 13th Congressional District primary in Michigan, and she will be the next uh, representative for the 13th Congressional District because she runs unopposed in the November election. I wanted to ask you about um, socialism and democratic socialism. Uh, you ran on a platform of a $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all. Um, everyone kind of says, "Oh, Rashida Tlaib, she's the democratic socialist. What, what does that mean to you?
1: Well, I, you know, and I don't know if people, know, like, you know, trying to, 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 to focus on identifying me as a certain, oh, I'm part of this party. I'm, part, I'm you know, I'm a member of the League of Women Voters, NWCP, uh, the Michigan Democratic Party and all this stuff. I'm for humanity, for universal health care, for uplifting people out of poverty. I truly believe uh, when people ask me, you know, what do you think is the ultimate goal as a member of Congress? And I tell them that every single member and child in the 13th Congressional District has a right to thrive, has a right to live in a just, equitable society. And I can tell you, DSA has been an instrumental partner in pushing back against the big corporate tax breaks that are given given to corporations right here in the 13th Congressional District. I mean, I've witnessed what the shifting of our public dollars into a hockey stadium for a billionaire and how we closed over close to over 50 schools Right here in Detroit, and one of my school uh, cities in the thirteenth actually lost their school district. They have no school district. But then we sit there and shift those public dollars away from the needs of the families in the thirteenth into a for-profit hockey stadium that we don't we don't see the benefit of. Uh, many of my families don't even go to hockey games. I mean, that is that imbalance and injustice injustice that happens. That's something that again that fuels me, and and that's how I ran. I ran on this. You know, this shouldn't be us versus them. This should be a win-win. This shouldn't be us focusing primarily on, you know, for-profit development while our schools are being defunded and while our kids are being in crowded classrooms of 45 or more.
0: I think the thing most people probably know about you now is that you heckled the president in 2016, and it <laughs> I ran. No, it, it happened
1: so many years ago.
0: <laughs> it ran <laughs> yeah. uh, on television a million times every time you appeared. Uh, I never quite got exactly what you were heckling him about. You seemed to be heckling him about the Constitution. Yeah. uh what, it what wasn't that, what
1: even was heckling. It? You know, it was a question. I know when I when I really mean it. It wasn't just me; it was 12 other women. And you know, when I was asked, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna go. We have some questions." And at that time, Detroit Economic Club had, in, had asked the candidate for President Trump at the time to come down. This is, was the first time they didn't allow questions. It was very absurd to us. Uh, this is a person that wants to be president of the United States, but you're not going to allow us to ask questions. So 12 of us got into the, the conference center where he was going to speak. And every two minutes we asked a question. We didn't hackle. We didn't yell. We said, well, wait a what minute. do you, you think were, of labor?
0: You were standing there yelling on television and there, well, there were guys coming well, after we, you. Well, and, and I you had were... to
1: yell. I didn't get a microphone. You know, I, I had to ask uh, uh, Donald Trump. Have you ever read the Constitution? What part of the Constitution have you read? And people, you know, proceeded to boo me and shoo me. And the craziness of all of it was the crowd. The crowd was so-called business members of, 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 you know, from the community and from the neighboring cities, and they were pushing, shoving, some were literally drooling at the mouth of just the anger and pure hate that was, that, that you felt in that room. It it was, it was so surreal for me, but I, I just wanted to ask him that question. And I wanted to also be there to support the other women, and yes, I got pulled out. And, and my mother, of course, is you got arrested. And I said, it's detainment. And it's the most American thing. And I'll repeat this. The most American thing I could have ever done was to ask that man if he's ever read the Constitution.
0: Uh, I wanted to ask a couple questions about uh, how you will approach the Israel-Palestine situation. Um, there's lots of speculation about this in the media. There's uh, things on the internet. Uh, Breitbart says Democrat Rashid Talib celebrates primary win with anti-Israel treats, uh, tw- tweets. And then um, there's other people who say, well, she's a J-streeter. She's got support from J-street. Um, are are you – I've also read that you think um, the school should be integrated and that Palestinian yes. <laughs> and Israeli kids should go to school together, which yes. would make me think that you're a one-state solution person. Uh, what, yes. what, 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 <laughs> what, what are you?
1: Look, I, you know, again, I grew up in a city that my teachers, my neighbors went through the civil rights movement. And they continue to go through this new era of civil rights right now in our country. And I come with that lens. Every corner in my neighborhood is a reminder of the civil rights movement. It may be through murals, made through where the rebellion of 67 happened in my city. It, it is all of those experiences that I come with. Of course, I'm
2: supportive. I'm an American. You know, I can't impose my, you know, my own soul beliefs onto another people. Right. But I can tell you this separate but equal did not work in our country. And yes, when I say I want to segregate uh, the school system I I do feel like that's the way to move towards real, true, genuine uh, uh, approach to um, really having peace there. You know, right now, I mean, look at what's happening in Tel Aviv, where you have Israelis and Palestinians marching together against Netanyahu's Israel. The Netanyahu wants to make Hebrew the official language there. I love that there's a movement there that nobody's talking about where Israelis and Palestinians get it now. I think they, they can feel the sense of this kind of you don't get equal access to health care, to housing, to equal opportunity, because you can't prove that you, you have to be a certain state or you have to be a certain type of, you know, you, I think there are certain kinds of criteria they have to go through to get equal citizenship. I know that the racism that's happening towards African Jews there is pretty prevalent and is growing. I mean, Ethiopian Jews are now uh, uprising and saying enough is enough. So what I see is what I have experienced, again, with my history teacher and and everybody that has taught me, my neighbors who have taught me what the struggles was of even finding housing in the city of Detroit and saying, well, my grandparents, Rashida, when they came here, they couldn't get a housing in this area. Um, because blacks weren't allowed to buy homes in this area. And again, that is the lens that I bring to this issue. And that's why when I talk about it, people are like, what do you mean? What does she support? And when I say I support humanity and support this value of equality for all, I think that's what they're confused about. Because when people start choosing a side, Israel or Palestine, that's when we start falling into the trap of divide. And I can't I'm not going to go through that journey because it doesn't work. I'm going to go through the journey of how do I bring people together.
0: So if you were in Congress and there was a bill that was going to restrict the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement, you would vote for it or against it?
2: No, you're talking about American aid, right? This is leverage. This is leverage to making sure that we're not supporting racist Go ahead.
0: I mean, the boycott divestment sanction movement, there's been oh, all, this legislations, yes. all this legislation yes. against it. You would you would uh, su- you would support that legislation, not support Absolutely. that?
2: Absolutely. Le- look, look, no, no, no. Absolutely would support the BDS movement and allowing people to express themselves through that movement. You know, economic boycotts were part of the civil rights movement in our country. Those kinds of movements are freedom of speech. We wouldn't be the country that we are if we didn't allow that to happen. So if you are a college student, which I have supported college students doing a BDS movement on their campuses of pushing back and because that's what they wanted to, that's their right. And I'm not going to support any bills that oppress people that that tell people they don't have a right to free speech. It is absolutely, you know, and then for for people to say, well, that means you're anti-Semitic or you're anti this, that is absolutely ridiculous. They are anti-racism, anti-injustice, anti anti Uh, militarization of a whole community and and targeting innocent families. To me, BDS is just a form of speech. And as an ACLU card member, I'm going to absolutely be able to continue to support that.
0: Well, Rashida Tlaib, it'll be interesting to see you in Congress. Uh, I look forward to hearing more about you and learning what you're doing. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, the issues at hand.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Turkey's economic meltdown and how it might affect the rest of the world. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. Turkey's crisis with the lira is giving everybody the shakes. The international community has looked at the economy there and is taking some pause. So are people in Turkey. We're going to talk about what's happening now with Yaya Madra. He's an associate professor of economics at Drew University. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Jerome. You know, Turkey's economy always seems to be running big deficits and uh, there's always big infrastructure projects. Uh, why did it tank now? Why did this thing happen?
3: Well, this is an uh, accumulated uh, process. Uh, Turkey has two uh, very important deficits. One is a trade deficit. And uh, that comes from the fact that Turkish economy is very dependent on energy that they need to import and also intermediary goods. It's a kind of an old import substitution industrialization legacy. So, uh, any growth depends on increasing the deficit, trade deficit that is the imports. One and two, it's a young population demographically and also middle income country, and therefore its savings are less than its investment uh, desire. For growing, it needs to therefore borrow. And this became possible uh, much more easily after the 2002 crisis when Turkish uh, banking sector had a very major crisis in 2002. And after that, it had a major reform. And that reform enabled Turkey to connect with the international financial capital markets much more integratedly.
0: And did, and, did that cause the Turkish leadership to kind of drink too heavily from the mega project? Well, it seems like they have gone on a, a borrowing binge that's um, pretty substantial. That doesn't necessarily get you the growth all the time that you need.
3: Yes, I mean that's a very good point. These mega projects are part of Erdogan's re-election strategy every time. And it has a actually uh, very much of a symbolic function in Erdogan's sort of uh, popularity, a kind of growth uh, fetishism, we call it in Turkey, among some critical economists. And this became even more accentuated after the 2008 crisis when Fed reduced down the interest rates in United States, which meant that uh, very cheap money is floating, liquidity is floating across the globe, in particularly in emerging economies. And Turkey has been benefiting from that. But also, uh, after a while, there's a part of also uh, increasing desire in Turkey to fund these projects with treasury guarantees. So that is also another part of the story, which makes not only the Turkish public indebted, but also the government, uh, the budget, state budget, becoming more and more indebted.
0: How do you fold the diplomatic crisis in with this? Because we've had this uh, flap with the United States and Pastor Brunson, along with other repeated flaps with the U.S., and now this creates, you know, problems for Mr. Erdogan's ability to get out of this thing.
3: Yes, of course. Erdogan um, is kind of caught in a moment uh, that is both in an impasse in a a foreign policy area, especially in Syria, and also in an economic impasse with the currency crisis that Turkey is turning into, a debt crisis, and maybe, uh, who knows, a default crisis. So on these two frontiers, right now, it's kind of a moment where There is not much room for maneuver for him, uh, except perhaps stepping back. Uh, But that's also politically not viable. Uh, So he's playing against time. Uh, What's happening with the diplomatic crisis is, of course, sits on two major fault lines. One is the extradition of the Muslim cleric Fetullah Gulen. And the other one is Turkey's sort of loggerheads with U.S. on Syria, especially U.S. support for the Kurdish militias. So those two areas are the sources of fault line from the perspective of Turkey, I think.
0: It seems like the Trump administration, though, is really focused on Pastor Brunson. Is there... Uh, something that Erdogan can do to release this person from house arrest and bring him back to the U.S. And that would satisfy the U.S. and the sanctions would come off.
3: Well, uh, funny you should say that because uh, previously uh, there's a Turkish-German journalist, Denis Yücel, who's a German citizen, was released overnight when Germany threatened Turkey with some sort of reduction in investment lending and so on and so forth, also military equipment sales. And suddenly the Turkish judicial system was very uh, turning, making a 180 degrees turn and releasing uh, the journalists overnight. So U.S. is now thinking that if Turkish judicial system is under influence in such a way of Erdogan's decisions, why not Erdogan do it this time around? But of course, Erdogan is playing the judicial system as independent card. But how much it is credible is a big question, of course, given the recent history of uh, very arbitrary decisions of the judicial system in Turkey.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Yaya Madra from Drew University about the Turkish economic crisis. In a few minutes, we're going to turn our attention to the Aloha Poke Company controversy. The restaurant has some interesting ideas about copyright and protesters are out there protesting of the Aloha Poke Company. That's coming up in a few minutes. I wanted to say something about President Erdogan's son-in-law, who is the chief economic guy. He's in a position now that is kind of a combined finance economic minister position. And he doesn't seem like he's got a lot of experience. (laughs) How does he play into this crisis?
3: Well, Erdogan has an interesting theory. Uh, I don't know if I can reproduce here, but he says uh, the inflation is a result of high interest rates which is against the standard economic theory, when there is inflation, you would raise the interest rate to cool down the economy, right? So he's against sort of inflation rates, uh, inflation interest rates to be too high uh, so that he can support his sort of uh, debt-fueled economy, right, the economic growth. And he was very much against the Central Bank of Turkey for years, especially after 2013, he became more accentuated in his sort of criticism of the Turkish Central Bank. And the son-in-law comes in uh, in that moment where he is now taking full control of the monetary policy of the economy, Erdogan, and he assigns the son-in-law as the person to basically uh, push and steer the central bank in the direction that he wants. The son-in-law is, of course, previously was a minister of energy, and that's also a very important uh, area. Uh, Even though Turkey doesn't have enough uh, oil resources, there are a lot of pipelines that is coming from Caucasus and, of course, through Iran and so on and so forth. So all those pipelines that is feeding into the big market of Europe is a very lucrative area. So he had his earlier education, the son-in-law, as a minister of energy, uh, and now he's been uh, put on this position. But you're right, his education is uh, somewhat questionable, especially there's a scandal about him making his thesis written by some of his professors. So he's kind of subcontracted his ma thesis uh uh, in that sense that's at least what came out and then it was censored and so on and so forth
0: now is he the guy who's got to explain to president erdogan that uh, all the central bankers want to raise interest rates and you don't want to raise interest rates he's in between these two figures and uh the sensible thing to do would be to raise interest rates right
3: well, in fact, uh, I was just hearing some commentators who are more experienced in this. They're saying five to 10 point interest rate hike is needed uh, to stabilize if you want to go that direction. That is true, sort of returning back to a kind of more mainstream uh, solution to this crisis. Though Krugman suggested uh, that maybe some sort of capital controls might be another path. So uh, we don't know which direction they're going to go. But I think Erdogan going to raise interest, it means that they may also do something like an IMF policy, right, an emergency relief and some sort of uh, set of standard policy measures. And that's a politically big no-no for Erdogan because he kind of created his political capital by saying that we paid off IMF debt, we, are, we don't need IMF, uh, and um, sort of a kind of an anti-IMF discourse was very strong in Erdogan's political career. So um, he's in that sense in a certain impasse there, it seems.
0: Well, where else could he go to borrow, do you think? Is somebody out there with a pot of money waiting to rescue him?
3: Well, he uh, apparently contacted Russia, even though uh, Russian sources denied that he asked for money. But Russia doesn't have much money either. And even if they're going to give some money, Putin is going to give some money, they will ask concessions in Syria. Then Gulf states, uh, Gulf countries, uh, so Kuwait and Qatar seem to be reticent in providing, that's what I heard yesterday, and China. And the China is also, of course, option perhaps to a certain extent, but what it is is that you know, they are not in very good shape, and to what extent they're going to get into uh, without getting something in return is a big question as well. So what I'm hearing is that the other options are not necessarily viable either.
0: Uh, So it sounds like President Erdogan has options. He just doesn't like the options he's got and is going to have to swallow his pride and, uh, you know, raise interest rates, go to the IMF, do these things that he doesn't like to do. (laughs) If he doesn't do it, the global economy tanks or something.
3: Well, I mean, yes, Turkish economy is quite big, but what is the size of the contagion? I'm not so sure about that. I mean, some people argue that uh, especially some of the Spanish and Italian uh, banks are going to be adversely affected. And uh, Merkel gave a speech, uh, gave a sort of uh, mentioned yesterday saying that we want a better economy in Europe's periphery. We don't want Turkey to uh, tank. So uh, Europe is worried about Turkey's uh, sort of contagion effects. Uh, So it's going to be some sort of a a process in which Erdogan might create some options or maybe Europe might create some options for Erdogan to save face at the same time. So with Trump uh, on the steering wheel in the United States... uh, How much they're going to be able to manage this through is a difficult question, of course. How much a saving face alternatives can be created in between is a difficult question.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Yaya Madra from Drew University about the Turkish economic crisis. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking about the Aloha Poke Company and the people who are protesting them over their copyright enforcement. Hope you can stay tuned for that. Is there a human element here that is kind of frightening, the way that he is beyond institutions, son-in-laws, pride? Uh, There's a lot of just emotional stakes here that would not lead you to a pragmatic solution.
3: Erdogan is kind of pushed himself into a situation where he doesn't have a number of exit strategies. And this is in many different areas, both in the foreign policy in Syria, in economics, he is in a certain way pushes himself into the corner in order to keep a certain uh, 51% coalition in Turkish electoral base. So uh, I think everything organized in Erdogan's politics and economic politics is in order to keep himself in power. So uh, I think that might be the human element we're talking about, that he is sort of very much a machine that is trying to reproduce his position as a leader in the country. Because the moment he would step down, uh, it is possible that some of the things that have been put under the carpet may come surface again.
0: What do you mean that if he were to step down? He, he just won this gigantic uh, power grab in, in June, and he seems pretty cemented.
3: Sure, but right before the elections, there was a possibility. At least uh, some of us may be delusional enough to think that was possible. Uh, but, you know, uh, he has 51% of the votes. Let's remember that. And 49%, 48% votes against him. The problem is that opposition is not unified. Uh, They can't come together, especially the anti-Erdogan group and the Kurdish political party cannot come together. Uh, And Erdogan's biggest success is to put a wedge in the opposition between the Kurds uh, or the Kurdish-oriented party, HDP, and the other Republican People's Party, for instance, sort of center-left party. So... He's a major power grab, he inc- increased the sort of his strongman position, yes, but at the same time, electorally, he's 51%. And, you know, and there is also some questions about whether or not the election was fair and square. Even if there was no uh, wrongdoing during the election, the campaign buildup period was very unfair. I mean, no television access to the opposition, no serious television media access to the opposition very much oppression of the political parties throughout those months of electoral. And it was a very quick call election, right, in two-month period. So it was very unfair in the process of the build-up to the election. So in that sense, I don't think he is that strong as well. I mean, there is actually a sort of uh, urgency in him to be able to reproduce his position. So he also pulled the election back before the crisis hits. We knew that crisis was going to come just diplomatic spat with uh, Trump is just a symptom, like just the last minute thing that pushed the trigger, basically. But the leverage levels have been so high that the crisis was going to come. So he knew that we knew that and then he pulled the elections early and got his way. But some people are even mentioning what about an early election? I don't know he would do that. But there's no one to force him right now. But still.
0: Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Turkey. Yaya Madra is Associate Professor of Economics at Drew University. Thanks for talking about the lira debt crisis in Turkey.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the controversy and the protests over the Aloha Poke Company. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. The Aloha Poke Company was founded in the West Loop. It's a fast food chain that serves poke, a traditional Hawaiian dish. Recently, the company sent out cease and desist letters to Hawaiian business owners to defend the Aloha Poke name, which is trademarked. Here's one of the business owners who got a letter and changed her name.
4: My name is Tasha, and uh, my daughter Le here, and we own um, Le's Poke Stop now. Recently rebranded. We did so because of a letter that we received from Aloha Poke Company uh, back in May saying that we should stop the use of the words Aloha and Aloha Poke because they own the rights to that. We felt like we needed to rebrand and we did so, but we did it with Aloha and so. I just want you guys out there. We I've been seeing a lot of violent threats, a lot of um, a lot of very angry people, and we and you know you our people have every right to be angry, but um, we cannot drive out hate with hate. So I just ask that you guys um, continue to approach this situation with aloha, because that's not who we are. And we don't want the world to see how um, angry our people can be.
0: The letter that Tasha got claimed that the phrases Aloha and Aloha Poke belong to the company and that any use of them by other businesses infringed on its federal trademark... Native Hawaiians were outraged that Aloha Poke Company, a company owned by non Hawaiians, would claim ownership over their language and culture. Since then, the companies denied ever trying to trademark these Native Hawaiian phrases, just the Aloha Poke Company name. But the damage was done, and in Chicago this past weekend, activists protested outside of Aloha Poke here. More demonstrations are planned, and a Hawaiian advocacy group plans to build a legal case against the Chicago eatery. Joining us to discuss uh, what's happening is Hana E.E. Epstein, a Chicago-based playwright I've talked to before and is originally from Hawaii. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you again. Uh,
5: aloha. Mahalo for having me. Thank you so much for having me today. I, I don't
0: know if everybody knows what aloha really means. I mean, she's saying in, in that clip, Tasha was saying, I do this with aloha, and, and, and a phrase that we would normally, we just think it's a greeting.
5: Right. Most people just believe aloha means hello, goodbye, and love. But it goes much deeper than that. It is a word to express any beautiful feeling you have inside of you that no other word can express.
0: All right. So that goes uh, some ways towards making people understand why uh, everyone would be upset in Hawaii if, if this word were trademark
5: yes yes very much
0: uh, how did you find out about this controversy and what did you think
5: I originally found out through Facebook my brother had posted um, one of the articles about it and so it originally I was very very angry and I decided to channel that anger and turn it into helping with this movement to stop Aloha Poke from sending these cease and desist letters
0: and the woman there that we played in the Facebook clip her her name's Tasha, and her her that clip we played got a lot of attention, and she's actually here now for the protests?
5: Yes, she flew in. Um, she was with the march um, on Monday with us, and then she will continue to be here through Wednesday, our next protest.
0: What do you want the company to do at this point? They had this long statement on Facebook where they said, oh, you know, sorry, we've had some misunderstandings, and... Um, We're just trying to defend the Aloha Poke Company name and not anything else, not Aloha or not Poke or whatever.
5: In um, the cease and desist letters, which some have been posted online, it does state um, they say we therefore request that you immediately stop all use of Aloha and aloha poke in association with selling your food. So by them claiming they did not try to trademark aloha and then they put in the letters, you cannot use aloha.
0: So what would you like to see the company do? What's the demand?
5: So our demand is to retract the cease and desist letters and to issue a true apology to Native Hawaiian people for trademarking aloha and poke.
0: And the next next. Protest is when?
5: Is on Wednesday at 12.30 p.m., so tomorrow, 12.30 p.m., at the Fullerton location of Aloha Poke.
0: All right, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this from um, uh, a cultural perspective with James Young. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Victoria in Canada, and he's the author of Cultural Appropriation and the Arts. Thanks a lot for joining us, James O. Young.
6: Hi. Um that's a uh, Gideon for Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um could you say is it ever okay to kind of trademark something that is an indigenous name would that be okay?
6: Well, it depends what you mean by okay, right? I mean it is legal. Um and I think you need to put this in 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 a context, right? So, essentially like you need to put it in a, a, a historical context, and and that means going back a long way. I think. Um, so if you go back and, and a long way, I mean, and this is the 16th century. So what happened in the 16th century, if you'll recall from your college history courses, is that if you're in England, um, the rich people start enclosing common land. Right. What that, and because in that period of time land was the primary source of wealth, and so they try to have exclusive control over it. What's happening now is that intellectual property is a primary source of wealth, and so naturally, of course, the rich are trying to get exclusive control over it. Unfortunately, the legal regime in the United States and most other countries allows them to get away with it. So it is, in fact, perfectly legal uh, to uh, trademark uh, a name or a word like aloha or poke. Now, the question is uh, you might want to ask is, okay, is it legal? Is it moral? And uh, that's, of course, I think the, the important question here. And I think the answer to that is pretty clearly no. Um, I mean, for a start, I think that it is an attempt, just as people did in the 16th century, to take something that's in the public domain and ex- and exert exclusive private rights over it and that 's just wrong and it's, and it's, it, this is something that is not it, it shouldn 't be the exclusive right of of some individual or corporation it's something that is in the public domain and it sh- and they're, what they 're essentially engaged in if you want my take on this is they 're engaged in theft they 're stealing from the public domain.
0: Now, uh, they, so, if they clarify things and they say, "Well, we, we made a mistake in that first letter, and we just want to have the Aloha Poke Company name copyrighted," can they own? Is it okay for them to own that, in your opinion? Uh, while yeah, they don't. While they is. let everybody else use Aloha and Poke however they want.
6: Yeah. Uh, sure. Yes. Absolutely. I think that's fair enough, right? I mean, they there's there's a perfectly reasonable. Legal principle, uh, uh, which prohibits people from what's called passing off. That is to say, representing a, one good as a good presented by somebody else. So I can't make a movie and put the Disney logo on it the, and, and pass my work off as Disney's work. And that's perfectly reasonable. I, I should, there shouldn't be some, uh, Poke shop somewhere that's trying to pass off its products as the products of Aloha Poke. But I think that's what's going on here, right? I mean, they, what we're dealing with here is often uh, small family owned businesses that are not trying to pass off their products as uh, Aloha Poke. Uh, and you know, this is, uh, but this is the kind of heavy approach that we see not only from uh, this corporation, but lots of others. Starbucks is incidentally engaged in exactly the same behavior. Uh, a few years ago, there was a small coffee shop in Haida Gwaii, um, uh, which is um, uh, an, a native community in uh, British Columbia, uh, which had a coffee shop called Haida Bucks, and the the, the Starbucks corporation stepped in and tried to stop that um, company or that shop from operating under that, uh, that name. So, you know, we're, this, is, this is, you know, very common kind of behavior. Um, and up to a point, it, it's okay, but nobody's going to be mistaking Hyda Bucks for Starbucks, right? right. And, and similarly, no one's going to be mistaking some small family-owned uh, poke restaurant that just happens to have the name Aloha, in the title, or in its name, right. for Aloha Poke, right? And and so I, I think that this is just an, a heavy-handed and illegitimate attempt to, as I said earlier, um, appropriate something from the public domain.
0: James O. Young is a professor of philosophy at the University of Victoria. He's author of Cultural Appropriation and the Arts. And um, Hana, I wanted to ask you particularly about how Hawaiians feel Uh, It sounds like particularly dissed by this. When you read the Facebook comments, they are very vehement. And when we heard uh, Tasha's comments earlier, she was like, wow, people, there's a lot of anger here. Um, And there is. Can you uh, articulate why Hawaiians get so darn mad about this?
5: So – And I I attended a conference this morning in which uh, Tammy Baker, who is a UH professor, did a very abridged history of Hawaii and the colonization that we had. And part of that history was the idea that our and, and the fact that our language was taken away from us, made illegal for over 90 years that we wouldn't wasn't able. We weren't able to speak Hawaiian in schools until 1983. And that is – by them trying to take our language by aloha poke saying you cannot use your language, it's very reminiscent of that feeling. And I believe that's where majority of the anger comes from is through the colonization process of Hawaii.
0: And is there anything you could compare that to to kind of um, bring it home for Chicagoans?
5: So I read in a um, a newspaper article – I can't remember which one – someone had said, what if – A company, let's say in California, decided to trademark Chicago deep dish pizza. So no one could use Chicago or deep dish pizza in their name or in marketing their materials. How would Chicagoans feel about that?
0: And even though we haven't undergone – Decades of colonial oppression. We might get a little steamed about that. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, the next protest is is where and when again?
5: Is Monday, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday tomorrow at 12:30 p.m. at the Aloha Poke Shop on Fullerton Avenue. <laughs>
0: And you once again want to see the Aloha Poke Company do what exactly? So
5: exactly, we would like them, I have my notes here, to retract their cease and desist letters and issue a true apology to the native Hawaiian people for trademarking Aloha and Poke.
0: Hannah E. e. Epstein is a Chicago-based playwright. Her latest work is Not One But Two, which we talked about previously on the program. Thanks a lot for joining us again and talking about the controversy over Aloha Poke Company. Uh-huh. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking about how the term people of color fails to capture the nuance and differences between marginalized groups in the U.S. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Shazmin Hussein and Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.